Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by Pyro Putty. This is a product that uh, I'm very excited about as far as reinventing the wheel when it comes to fire starting technology. You can get Pyro Putty wet, it's still going to light. You can attach it to a wet log, it's going to burn long enough to start a fire on that wet wood. So when it comes to boosting morale in the backcountry, what, what is better than a a warm fire, right? There's nothing. You get home from a long day, back to camp. You've been chasing elk through the mountains or mule deer or whatever for you know, from sunup to sundown. You're cold and you're wet, and you can't get a fire started. Not because you don't have a fire starter, but because that fire starter doesn't do the job. Pyro Putty does, and you can find it at pyroputty.com. It's a size of about a can of dip. That's all it is. And inside that can of dip, you got a seven-hour burn time. You put a, a piece the size of a nickel, on a stick, and it's going to burn for 8 to 10 minutes. It's Pyro Putty. You need it in your backcountry kit. It's going to boost morale. Could save your life. You never know. Uh, but you can find it at pyroputty.com. Follow that trail. Don't make a sound. Watch for the barbed wire. Barrel to the ground. Hear the wind. Whispering in the blind. Anticipating what we'll find Leaving all the noise All right, Cable Smith, welcome everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show Powered by Dallas Safari Club That's a brand new one there from Corey Morrow Let's take this outside, kicking things off for us uh, Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as always uh, More importantly, thanks to you guys and gals for being here It is a pleasure a treat an honor to be talking hunting fishing the great outdoors and all that implies with you guys truly the highlight of my week every week and man been doing this almost 10 years we're not slowing down yet (laughs) Um, anyway hope you all had a great week i can't believe that summer is almost over Uh, we sent it off in grand fashion last week took the kids down to galveston um, with the wife and Actually, my entire family, my parents, my brothers, my nieces, my sister, sister-in-laws, everybody. And uh, the kids had a blast. They just loved to play in the sand and get that salt water on their skin. Unfortunately, though, uh, for my dad, myself, and one of my brothers, our fishing trip was canceled, which is uh, it's always a bummer when you've got your alarm set for 5. You're supposed to meet the guide at 6 a.m. at the uh, dock. And at 4.40, he texted me a picture of his trailer, and he had lost a ball bearing and was pretty much stuck. That thing was, the boat was riding on three wheels, and uh, it was like 30 miles from the dock. Just, there was no way for him to get there. So, uh, that kind of sucked, waking up my my brother, and uh, my dad was already up, and we were all bummed. My My youngest brother, however, not much of an outdoorsman. And he goes fishing with us once a year when we go to the beach. And I woke him up about 5.15 and said, hey, dude, we're not going fishing. And his response, yes, it's a Christmas miracle. And he went right back to sleep. The rest of us were pretty bummed out about that. And I I think maybe he's adopted. We don't really know how he is uh, so different from the rest of the Smith men. Uh, But we still had a blast. The kids went crabbing. We caught uh, blue crabs and then, of course, sand crabs in the <laughs> at nighttime. If you haven't ever 
giving your kid a flashlight and a net and just watch them go to town on sand crabs. It is an absolute blast. I remember doing it as a kid with my dad and grandfather and now uh, passing that tradition on to my kids. Uh, they'll have the same memories with me and their pops. Uh, so it's literally, it's a, it's a hoot. If you haven't done it, you need to. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Here's what's on the docket. We are going to start things off by heading to the mountains of West Texas to discuss the status of the desert bighorn and the uh, interesting relationship that exists between the desert bighorn and the invasive audad that inhabit much of the same habitat. And uh, we'll be joined by Texas Parks and Wildlife Desert Bighorn Program Leader Froilon Hernandez. Uh, always great visiting with Froilon. And there's some interesting stuff that Texas Parks and Wildlife does, like uh, maybe shooting all that out of helicopters in areas where they compete with these bighorn. Uh, also, a new study, uh, radio collaring Desert Bighorn, Audad, and Mule Deer to see how the three main big game species out there in West Texas coexist. Uh, so lots of fascinating stuff coming up with Froilon regarding our West Texas sheep. Then we'll head down to the coast and actually talk some fly fishing with Captain Vince Ochoa. Uh, we'll target redfish, trout, and flounder on the fly. So some cool stuff coming up here as we break out the long rods with Captain Vince here in just a little bit. And then we'll wrap up today's broadcast by checking in with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers CEO Land Tawney. Uh, the Trump administration recently appointed William Perry Penley as the acting director of the Bureau of Land Management. He has a track record of uh, saying that he's in favor of selling off public land. So you can imagine that there is cause for concern among public land enthusiasts like myself and uh, hopefully some of y'all out there as well. So that's what's on the schedule for today. Going to be a good one, guarantee you that. I'm certainly excited about it. A couple other things to mention. We're going to have a Kinetrek Boots giveaway coming up here in the next week or so, so you'll want to uh, stay tuned uh, not only to the show, but also check out my social outlets, Instagram, Facebook, as we'll alert you uh, to that Kinetrek giveaway. And these are the same boots that I wear um, on all of my hunting excursions and actually, um, you can pick out your own model, whatever kind of trick, uh, boot that you want, but same brand that I trust. And, uh, anyway, uh, excited about that. And, uh, also don't forget about our photo of the month contest. Our August grand prize is a stealth cam DS 4k. Uh, this is a $300 trail camera from stealth cam. And all you have to do is send in your best outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com to enter this month's contest. And then our 12 monthly winners from 2019 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt black buck or axis deer with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Um, let's do this. Let's do a quick giveaway. What do we have today? Oh, yeah. Texas Trophy Hunters Extravaganza going on this weekend in Fort Worth. And I've got one of their vintage 1975 shirts also a TTHA cap. And if you're interested in winning this prize pack, email the year that Trophy Hunters was founded and who founded it. That is the year that TTHA was founded. And uh, email the founder as well. And shoot that over to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you're entered to win the vintage Texas Trophy Hunters t-shirt and cap. 
Let's take a break. Up next, we'll head west and discuss Desert Bighorn and All Dad Sheep with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Froylon Hernandez. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Oh, I swore I did not hear it. Oh, I swore I did not know. And I think it's time I learned how to let her go. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. I said, no, I don't have any money. I don't intend to love you all my life. But I have cows in West Texas and a checkbook in my pocket. Honey, I could love you for a while. She said, adios, amigo. You just crossed over the line. There's a little Gary P. Nunn bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Adios, amigo, the name of that one. One of my favorite Gary P. tunes. And I tell you, I've, I've never really been starstruck in, well, I can't say never. There have been a couple times I've been starstruck <laughs> uh, as far as folks who've come on the Lone Star Outdoor Show and when Gary Pinon actually came to the studio in my house, that was a pretty surreal deal. And then also one of the others had to be Nolan Ryan. Um, just growing up as a baseball fan in Texas, to have Nolan on the show back in the day was uh, another one of those moments. It was like, my childhood hero just came on my talk show. But anyway, uh, I'm so glad that y'all are here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our presenting sponsors. Uh, we're all set to head to West Texas, and we're going to focus on the relationship that exists between two big game species out there, the invasive Audat and, of course, the desert bighorn sheep. And we'll do so with Froilon Hernandez momentarily. But first, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. And they've actually had their fingerprints all over desert bighorn restoration out in West Texas, just for example of what you know, DSC does and who they are and what they stand for. They're passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. I'd love to have you join Dallas Safari Club. I am a proud member. If you want more information, you can find us at biggame.org. Um, well, with that being said, 
Let's bring on our first guest today. He's by no means a stranger to the show. It is my pleasure to welcome Texas Parks and Wildlife's Desert Bighorn Program Leader, Froilan Hernandez. Yeah, absolutely. Always, always glad to chat with you all and, and, and glad you to, to be on. Well, so I hope that all is well in conservation with you and your department. I know you've been pretty busy of late. Yeah, it's a, you know right now we're in the thick of uh, thick of surveys, uh, sheep surveys, and so this year uh, we added an additional 80 hours to our our typical year, and so that's that's got us up in the air quite a bit. You know, so we've been flying half since uh, mid uh, July and and go through end of end of August. So yeah, we're yeah, we're certainly booked up. <laughs> so well, so let me ask you this: um, How are our Texas desert bighorns doing you know they were extinct by the 1960s you and i've talked about that the history there how um you know i mean we've texas parks and wildlife and other conservation organizations have dumped millions and millions of dollars into their restoration uh which i think started back in the 70s and i don't know how many animals were up to by the latest count but i think it's well over a thousand at this point isn't it oh yeah 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 absolutely so we're We've been hovering around uh, 1,500 for the last uh, several years. We're trying to kind of trying to break that mark. Uh-huh. Uh, we've done several translocations and been able to restore uh, sheep to at least three mountain ranges that had been void of, of bighorn since their extirpation over 60 or nearly 60 years ago. So uh, certainly doing doing progress. And, and again, the current status is about 1,500 in Texas. Okay, that's great to hear. Yeah, interestingly enough, you know these. Uh... But I've always read, and, and I'm not sure, you, you might be able to validate this, but uh, my understanding is that World War II soldiers stationed in North Africa saw these, these sheep, these Audad sheep over there. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about the interaction between Audad and, and Desert Bighorns today. And then uh, next thing you know, they're bringing them back to Texas. And these Audad, <laughs> they thrive in the same, you know. Think about the the most inhospitable place in Texas. That's where these Bighorns and Audad seem to to uh, do the best, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, they share the the, the same type of uh, same type of habitat. Uh, however, all that seem to be a little bit more of a generalist, uh, more so than than bighorns are, anyway. Uh, and so they use the habitat uniformly. And so we're it's not uncommon for us to see them uh, down in the flats and out in the rolling hills, and then using the rough stuff where where the sheep are at. So mm-hmm. yeah, they you know they tend to uh, occupy the, the Pretty much everything uniformly out here in West Texas. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about the audit here in a minute, but but going back to the the, uh, the counts that you guys are doing, you said you you run through from July through August, and you're you're you know doing aerial surveys. Yeah, correct. Uh, typically, it's just the whole entire month of August, but again, this this year we added a a few more mountain ranges, and that's going to be the protocol from this point forward, and that's the reason for. Uh, beginning in, in July. And so, again, typically we run the, whole, the entire month of August. We have our set mountain ranges that, that we survey. And uh, this year we included additional mountain ranges where every now and again, uh, you know, somebody, uh, the, where, where they're sighting, somebody observes one or says, hey, we saw some sheep here. So we're going to investigate those reports. Mm-hmm. And then the plan is for every every third year to, you know, to look into additional habitat and, and and check into a naturally expanding uh, populations. Okay, and where's the biggest concentration of desert bighorns located? I don't know if that's in Big Bend State Park or elsewhere, but 
Where out of the fifteen hundred animals, you know, which mountain range holds the most? Yeah, so the biggest concentration is what we call the meadow population, and that or it's a conglomerate of three mountain ranges uh, north of Van Horn, and they're made up of the Sierra Diablo, the Beach, and the and the Baylor Mountains. Uh, currently, in fact, we just flew those mountains and we got done with them uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, there's there's probably in in those three mountain ranges uh, we observed uh, you know, nearly 500 animals, a little over 500 animals. Mm. So I'm sure we missed a, a few. So it's quite possible there's there's at least you know 600 within those those three mountain ranges. Wow. Okay. That's wonderful. Yep. Yep. And so. Do you guys, when you're doing the aerial surveys, do you keep track of all dad sightings as well? Uh, we do. Uh, we do keep track of all dad sightings, and 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 in fact, there's places that allow us to lethally remove uh, all dad, and so in places that do allow us that, we'll we'll try and thin them down as 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 much as we can to reduce competition and disease threats and those kinds of things. So, like say say those three ranges that you just mentioned, the beach. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to try to pronounce the the uh, Spanish one. You're you're obviously much more. <laughs> you, you got that one down. Um, and then the Baylor Mountains. Um, how many Audad? You know, you said you got 500 roughly um, desert bighorn sightings. How many Audad would you see in that same area? Yeah. So because we've been working in those three mountain ranges for. Oh, nearly 20 years now, and we've also been lethally removing all that for that many years. We've got a good handle on those mountain ranges. So every year we see a, you know, a handful here and there. Uh, I believe this year we, you know, we saw in the in the Baylor Mountains. I think we saw less than 10. In the beaches, we're probably about 12. And in the Sierra Diablos, probably about another 10 or 15. Sierra so, Diablos. Okay, got it now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in, in those three mountain ranges, you know, we didn't we didn't see that many. Mm. Uh, and that's been, I guess that's been the case for the last several years. Again, because we've been kind of managing those to keep them at at, at low levels. Yeah. So yeah, but there's there's other places that that we do have infestations, uh, and 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 those are the places that we're looking into beginning, you know, beginning the program, the management program. Okay. Kudos to you guys for being in front of this. A lot of well, mostly state wildlife agencies, for example, that I've I've spoken to. Idaho Fish and Game they they gun wolves out of helicopters. They don't want to go on the record and talk about it because they don't want the antis to get all up in right. arms. You know, yeah. they like to keep that stuff out of the press and on the down low. Uh, you guys are willing to talk about it, and I think that uh, being transparent is a big part of uh, I think gaining the respect of the public. Saying so, I applaud you guys for for doing that um, because at the end of the day. Yeah, all that are cool. I like to hunt them. I call them poor man sheep hunting. They they offer an opportunity to chase sheep in the mountains. It's way more affordable uh, for the average guy. But we've dumped all these millions of dollars into, um, you know, <laughs> a native species in their restoration. And so uh, it, it doesn't bother me one bit to to place the priority on the desert bighorn over over these invasive all yeah. Well, you know, and I appreciate you 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 saying that, and 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 you're right. We try and be as transparent uh, as pass as possible. Uh, it does come with with a lot of backlash and bad publicity and bad PR and all those things. Uh, but again, we wholeheartedly and I wholeheartedly believe in in what we are doing, and it's our responsibility to manage for our, our native species first. And so those are the the reasons why uh, why we do that. You know that that said. You know, they are, uh, you know, they are. All dads are a beautiful animal, and and, and it is a, a hunting opportunity for for lots of people, as you say. You know that that cannot 
uh, you know, that they cannot afford a, a desert bay cord hunt or, or whatnot. So, you know, so I see the value. I, I see the value in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to change the mindset now to where we manage for uh, having both species on on the landscape. And, and while that's still uh, a ways away, and our main priority should be or is to manage for desert bighorn for for a native species. I'm also a realist, and so I know that you know there's several things that are that are going to be very challenging to overcome. And one is exactly that they're growing in popularity as far as hunting goes, and it's an additional income for landowners. Uh, it's an additional uh, species that that the public can hunt, and so those you know those things I see as as positives uh, in in their own right. And so uh, I don't think we'll ever uh, get rid of all the audad, particularly because we do have some heavy, heavy infestations in in some areas, and 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 so it's going to be very challenging to really get them down to to say zero, mm-hmm. and recognizing that we'll never do that, uh, or likely that we never do that. Well, then let's just go ahead and try and manage both species while keeping the audad numbers in check, and in check I mean at, at a much more uh, de- lower densities than what they occur now. Right. Right. Well, and, and, you know, there's other places where they're overpopulated. And, I mean, like, you just look at the hill country. Um, shoot, I was hunting them in Rock Springs oh, back this past uh, March. And, I mean, you could look on any cliff face there in uh, in this property I was on, and, and, my gosh, every one of them was littered with Audad. Um, same around Bandera. I've hunted out there. And, uh, you know, same deal. And, and the thing about Audad um, – in, especially in those really in those places with a lot of elevation changes, is that you can try to high fence them in or out, and they kind of just come and go as they please because it's nothing for them to hop over an eight foot fence. Yeah, yeah, no, it's you know that's that's true uh, out here because they're all free ranging. You know, they they do tend to go wherever, uh, pretty much wherever they want to, and and and, and you're right. You know, they're in the areas that I'm talking about that, that you know that they're heavy infestations. It's not uncommon to see a group of or a herd of say two or three hundred mm-hmm. uh you know we did a survey on two mountain ranges out here and we counted nearly five thousand audad on two mountain ranges <laughs> wow you know what i mean and so when we have those kinds of numbers you know it's it's extremely difficult to go in there and do anything uh to be effective whether it's through a lethal removal program or, or whatever so we're exploring other options to thin them down uh, but again, recognizing that we're probably not going to get rid of all of them, yeah. Uh, and 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 so we're you know, we're, we're developing a, a strategy, a management strategy that that allows for the management of of both species. So you mentioned two or three audad in that one area. I mean, excuse me, two or three thousand audad in that one area, which is more than our our entire statewide population of desert bighorn sheep. Why do the audad seem to thrive and actually do better in the desert bighorn sheep's native range. I mean, that's the interest. Do they breed? Are they more prolific breeders, or what is the factor there as to why they can, um, you know, proliferate yeah. while well, our desert bighorns are doing better? Obviously, but still, uh, I'd love it if you said, "Hey, there's four thousand desert bighorns." You know? <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, no, so uh, there's there's several uh, reasons why. Uh, I believe you no, know, they do as as well as they do, and and one is exactly that. They're, you know, they they seem to, and you know, we've got studies going on right now that'll hopefully shed more light into that. But they seem to 
to be able to reproduce at a much higher rate than, than bighorns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it appears that they might have two lambing seasons, uh, you know, at least two peak lambing seasons, but it's not uncommon for us to see lambs throughout the year. So, so they are able to reproduce at a much faster rate than, than bighorns, whereas bighorns only have one breeding season and one lambing season for the year, and that's it. And they'll typically only have, although they're capable of, of, of having twins, uh, they rarely do, and so they have, uh, most of them only have one lamb a year. Mm. Uh, whereas our dad, you know, you know, we see we see twins uh, often, and so again, they are able to reproduce at a much uh, higher rate, as well as uh, they do that seem to do that throughout the year. So that's one thing, and and then the other is because they are habitat generalists, uh, you know, they tend to use the habitat uniformly, and so once they use an area, and the resources, the the forage is down. You know, they'll just get up and go camp out somewhere else, and they'll move. And so they relocate uh, like that. A lot of people call them they're a little bit more nomadic than than sheep are, mm-hmm. whereas bighorns are not. You know, they're they're essentially habitat specialists, and so they stick to the mountains or whether whether the resources are good in good condition or the resources are bad. You know, the sheep are going to stay there, and they're not going to move around like the like the odd that seem to do. So I think those two reasons is uh, are some of the things of why. No, they do so well out here. Hmm. Okay. Let me ask you this. Um, as far as, see, obviously we have four sheep species in North America. We've got the desert bighorn, the Rocky Mountain bighorn, stone sheep, doll sheep. And some of these sheep, you know, you can find them upwards of 13, 14,000 feet. Um, what is the highest peak in Texas, and, and do we have desert bighorns there? Uh, so the highest peak in Texas would be Wild Peak, and while we don't have – uh, sheep there. It is part of their historical or historical range. As far as the elevation, I'm not entirely sure, but I think Wailupe Peak is somewhere near the you know, 8,000, 9,000 foot mark. Uh-huh. But again, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, that's the highest peak and, and uh, it, it's part of their historical uh, historical range. Yeah. And so what, like on average, what, how high are the peaks where it, it just say um, yeah. where most of our desert bighorns are occupying that habitat yeah so so on average uh the where our, our bighorns occur desert bighorns occur in texas now range anywhere from five to you know, 6,500, 7,000 foot okay okay right on yeah, yeah it's interesting because you, you know you go across the uh the state line into new mexico and uh you can go somewhere like um central new mexico or Somewhere around Red River, and and you can find these sheep up on Wheeler Peak, the highest point in yep. New Mexico. It's no big deal, yep. uh, thirteen, fourteen thousand feet, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I don't I don't know in in other places where desert bighorns occur, like maybe Nevada, uh, do they have higher peaks where these sheep are up over you know ten thousand, twelve thousand feet? Yeah, I, th- I think once they get uh, anywhere above that, it you know, it it becomes less of uh, less of their habitat type, and so. And if you're talking about Rockies, you know, the habitat is, is it's, it's got the elevation, but it's a little too wooded. And so bighorns, desert bighorns, they, they tend to like more open, less wooded areas. Huh. And so, yeah, so the higher you go, if, say in the Rockies, you know, you start getting into into the timberline and, and whatnot. And so that might be a, another limiting factor as far as how high sheep can go just, just based on their, uh, quote, unquote, uh, biology. And based off of their body size how do they how do they compare to their uh, rocky mountain cousins so they're they're a bit a little bit smaller than than the rocky mountain uh cousins uh, uh, uh 
a good size, I'd say a good size uh, desert. It's, you're probably looking at 150, maybe 180 uh, ram anyway. Uh-huh. Uh Yeah, 180 pounds, and that's probably you know that's probably pushing it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they are they are a little smaller than their rocky cousin. Okay. Well, you know, it's like anything else. The farther north you go, the bigger the animals get. Yep, yep. Uh, the thicker their coats get, and they get, got more fat to deal with those harsh winters. Um, let's do this because we do need to take a quick break. Um, can you stick around? I want to talk a little bit more about some projects that you have going on with the Audad. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to. Excellent. And that segment, by the way, was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Uh, they've been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for a long, long time whether that's uh, speckled trout from Corpus Christi Bay or a kudu from South Africa and everything in between. Josh and Becky do amazing work with quick turnaround time, and they answer the phone when I call. That's a pretty rare error for a taxidermy studio, I feel like, at least my previous experiences. Uh, check them out. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr the number eight mounts.com. We will be right back with more from Texas Parks and Wildlife Desert Bighorn Program Leader Froylon Hernandez. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. And I don't want to hear the good side of this goodbye. If you want to go, baby, just leave. Don't tell me that you still care. And that I'll always be special because his words don't mean a damn thing. And hey, that I'm still up. The granddaddy of all hunting shows returns this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. We'll have all the latest in hunting gadgets and gear. Buy direct from the manufacturers and save. Bring the kids and see Gator Country's huge alligators. Last season's bucks from our annual deer contest. Live rattlesnakes. And enter our incredible locked and loaded giveaway. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. Returning this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. For details and tickets, visit Hunter'sExtravaganza.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Rolling through Texas and Louisiana Go through Georgia, hit up Florida State And I'll be an Alabama, Alabama slammer Up to Mississippi to see my baby Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club Thank you to uh, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, longtime presenting sponsors as well. Thanks to you folks for being here. It is great to be talking all things outdoors with you. Today we are focusing, right now anyway, on desert bighorn sheep and the invasive Audad that coexist 
and much of their home range uh, throughout Texas, out in the mountains out west anyway. And uh, we're going to pick it back up with our Texas Parks and Wildlife Desert Bighorn program leader, Froilan Hernandez, momentarily. But first, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by First Light. And the brand new Guide Light pant, this pant is more lightweight than what you're used to from First Light. And that's great because, you know, during those early season hunts, uh, it gets kind of hot, you know. It might be cool in the mornings and evenings, but midday, man, it's it's uh, temperatures get up there into the 80s, even low 90s. And if you do start sweating, you know the fabric is going to dry uh, that much quicker due to the, the lightweight nature. It's available, of course, in uh, First Light's Cypher and Fusion camo patterns, as well as I'm probably going to just go out on a limb here and say Dry Earth and their other uh, popular conifer version. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. All right, well, let's pick it back up here with our good friend, uh, TPWD Desert Bighorn Program Leader, Froilan Hernandez. Thanks for sticking around through the break, brother. Certainly enjoying talking sheep with you today. Yep, yeah, no, again, glad to uh, glad to be here. So I kind of want to talk more about the, the AWDAD and what you guys have going on as far as uh, different research projects. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've never seen until recently any evidence and you guys, I'm sure, have been doing stuff like this, but I had never seen any of the collaring efforts on Audad. Of course, we know that you do it with the sheep. That's well documented. But recently I saw a video uh, where some, I guess, some of the folks under your guidance, you know, with the uh, Desert Bighorn Sheep Program, were actually conducting some Audad research, and I saw a video. Unfortunately, one of the people got a concussion. There's no doubt because the Audad <laughs> jumped and, like, headbutted this poor girl. Right, and uh, I actually reached out to her, and she politely declined an interview, saying she had no interest in talking about that situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but it got me thinking: what what were they doing? Um, on, because it was clearly a research effort, and like I said, I wasn't aware that we really did anything on that front as far as the all data are concerned. Right, right. Well, uh, first I like to say that yeah, that you know, she's a biologist lady that got a. Uh, just you know, quote unquote, run over by the by the all that. She's a biologist out here in West Texas, and so she's doing fine. Luckily, and we we were just glad that you know she was well, and you know, she enjoys doing doing that work out here. So shout out to her. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, you're right. That was part of a. Uh, it is part of a, a research study. In fact, we initiated this project back in back in December, and it's a real cool project because it's. Uh, to my knowledge, it's it's a one of a kind of project, the first of its kind, mm-hmm. and so we're looking into the interactions of uh, three uh, big game species out here, uh, primary big game species, which are uh, awdad, mule deer, and bighorn sheep, desert bighorn sheep, and so we're looking at those interactions as well as habitat use, uh, displacement, uh, social disruptiveness, uh, disease threats, you know those kinds of things, and again, it's a first of its kind study and so we're looking into all those things in the in the van horn mountains mm-hmm. well m- my personal experience is not hu- well not hunting in the van horn mountains um but what is it hudspeth county is that el paso no so hudspeth county uh is in between i guess it would be el paso county hudspeth and then culberson county okay so yeah so hudspeth is in between van horn and el paso okay so i i've hunted mule deer out there yeah. and seen Audad. So I have experienced that. 
But generally speaking, you know, I've hunted in the hill country and a lot of times hunting axis deer, you know, over a feeder or black buck or whatever. And here come the Audad and they run everything off whitetail, axis, it doesn't matter. Um, what is that? What has that been? I mean, is that, does that hold true in those areas? Are they the most dominant species of the three? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if if dom. Uh, you know, they appear to be dominant, but I'm not sure if that's if that would be the right term. They are a bigger animal uh, when you compare them to uh, a bighorn. I mean, they're just a lot heavier, uh, and, and I think it has uh, something to do with if they travel in huge numbers. Whereas bighorn, you even deer, mule deer, uh, if they're at a say a water site, you know, you'll generally see two or three whether mule deer or bighorn using a water site and, mm-hmm. and so odd that they travel in, in pretty good sized herds so you'll see 20 or 30 of them move in and i think you know that makes our native species uncomfortable and they tend to they tend to move away again having large numbers out on the landscape on sheep habitat uh it also appears that they displace them from the better habitat and and uh, kind of push them down to uh suboptimal habitat and so yeah so if you've uh, got 10 sheep living on this mountaintop and here comes a group of 50 all dad they're looking for the best habitat okay so then the, the sheep just kind of you know give way and yeah and so uh, absolutely right uh so you if you have 10 sheep in one spot and then all of a sudden you got 50 or 60 or 100 all that come through you know that tends to uh displace the the big one they just slowly start wandering off to not the other sites, and 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 oftentimes it's to less less optimal habitat. I'm not entirely sure that they're that they are that are you know actively displacing or running the bighorns away as much as the odd that probably don't feel comfortable with all that commotion going on, and so they have, you know by their own by themselves uh, move away. Whatever the case, whether they're being pushed out or they themselves move out, you know they they, they tend to go to those places that are that are less optimal. Mm-hmm. Back to this research, what, how exactly are you guys conducting that? And like how many all dad are, are being collared? What all goes into that study as far as um, gathering info on how the all dad mule deer and desert bighorn interact? Okay, perfect. Now that's a, that's a great question. So we've got, uh, so the study design is we've got 40 all dad, 40 bighorn and 40 mule deer all collared. And these collars are satellite collars, meaning, we can go online and, and, and essentially tell real time where the where the sheep are moving or where the animals are, are moving to and from. Uh, from that, we'll be able to tell how close they come into contact, how much time they spend together on a daily basis, if they spend any time together on a daily basis. Uh, we'll be able to tell what kind of habitat they use, when they use it, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things. And that will shed light into this whole uh, theory of, of displacement and disruptiveness. And I say disruptiveness because we've seen uh, all that rams herd away bighorn ewes. Hmm. And, and, when, and when they do that, you know, they'll, they'll have their, all that rams will have their own harem of, of bighorn ewes. And that is uh, obviously socially disruptive to the, to the bighorns. So we'll, wow. because so of he'll the, have, a, he'll have a whole herd of, of bighorn ewes that he's trying to they can't interbreed. No, right, right. They they can't, but you know because they're both, uh, I guess they're both uh, essentially a sheep species. You know they'll 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 the Audad rams will try and mount the ewes, uh, try and service them, and while they cannot reproduce, it it again it's still a 
socially socially disruptive. Well, yeah, because now your your bighorn ram isn't getting any uh, action there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, no, so with, with the collar stud, we will be able to look into those aspects of of our uh, of our thoughts or of our theories hmm. uh, to see that. And then uh, there's another uh, disease risk potential or threat that that we're also exploring. So these Audad uh, that we captured, uh, we also took tissue samples from, whether it was blood, nasal, the tonsil swabs, skin biopsies, uh, fecal, hair, you know, those kinds of things, and, and looking into potential diseases that Audads could carry that could be put, uh, transmitted to, to bighorns. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Well, I guess also a byproduct of that will be the ability to, to track the nomadic nature of these Audads. Like you said, they travel a lot more, and uh, if they're collared, you're going to be able to track those movements and see exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And so we've already seen some of those movements, uh, while not as far as we were uh, thinking. We already seen some of those movements. They went from one mountain range. A few of the Baudet went from one mountain range to another, and then they came back. So we're seeing uh, we're seeing a little bit a little bit of that hmm. going on now. What are what is the um, if any predators can take down a you know a, a bighorn ram um or a, an audad ram i imagine it would be a mountain lion i know we have those out in west texas are there any other serious threats as far as the predatory animals that can or that do prey on these species yeah for the most part we consider the mountain lion being the primary predator for for all three for whether for mule deer well in 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 the in the Bighorn habitat anyway, your country. Uh-huh. Uh, we, yeah, we consider the the mountain lions to be the number one predator. However, uh, there's others that are able to take them, whether it be a in a an animal sickly, a bear, a black bear could certainly take take one down, or coyotes certainly prey upon uh, some of these animals too. But the primary one would be a mountain lion. Okay, okay, awesome. And no, there's I don't know if. The study, I think, was it Sol Ross, maybe? Somebody recently, I don't know, we had the person on, if it's been three years or so. They had an interesting study going on on the uh, mountain lines of West Texas where they had collared, I think, maybe like 20 of them over a three- or four-year period. Um, but they had the prey species breakdown of what these cats were feeding yeah. on. And yeah. I remember, yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, and I remember distinctly that Desert Bighorn was on the list. yeah. And so we work uh, we work closely uh, with that with the researcher, and they're out of uh, I guess BRI, the Borderlands Research. That's what it was, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, here here at Sol Ross, so we work closely with them. In fact, uh, there's a, a, a tri species project. You know, we're we're collaborating with with them uh, on the research aspect of it, and and so yeah, uh, they did break it break it down. Uh, and that study was done up in the up in the Davis Mountains as well as a little bit. Uh, some of the cats that they collared, some of the mountain lions that they collared, uh, were down in on the national park, the Big Bear National Park. Mm. But yeah, they did have have that you know, have that breakdown, uh, the prey species uh, breakdown. Yeah. Well, so let's let's wrap it up here with where do you see this this study going um, in the future? Are we are you going to be collaring more of these animals across the three species you mentioned? You have forty of each. Is that going to stay? The sample size, or or how do you see this thing progressing? Yeah, no. So that's a great question. Uh, any any research project, they're typically done for a two year period, and so you only get a snapshot of what is going on during that two year period. Mm-hmm. So I'd like for this to be, and then it's only for that particular mountain ranges. 
oftentimes we use that research, the findings from from such research, uh, we use them to uh, extrapolate to other mountain ranges and and whatnot. But ideally, we would like to have at least two or three other sites where we could replicate this you know the, this study, hopefully increase our sample size to maybe fifty or more if possible uh to have them at, at say down in down the big Bend uh ranch state park and then maybe a little further down the river and so have have several sites where where we can uh have better insight into what is going on because again this this will be uh just a you know a few years project but it's only a snapshot in time of that mountain range and so we looked looking into growing this project into several other sites. Um, one last thing here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's only four, two or three or four tags available to the general public as far as the desert bighorn is concerned. You have the big-time Texas hunt, which offers uh, all four of our big-game species, whitetail, mule deer, antelope, desert bighorn, and then there is just a desert bighorn tag. And then I think there's like two maybe that you guys donate to um, – auction off at you know fundraising events as far as uh state tags or, or texas parks and wildlife tags yeah typically there's only three every now and again and four and as you mentioned one is a big time texas hunt and then uh the other would be the the desert bighorn hunt and then we do auction one off uh, at some of these functions mm-hmm. uh, to help pay for to help offset the cost of some of the operations and the beauty of those auction tags is that 90% of the proceeds generated from that auction come back straight to the sheep program, and they cannot be used for anything but a bighorn restoration. And we use use those funds for captures, for surveys, for uh, some of the research, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so typically there's only you know, three or four tags that are available to the public. And those generally However, go over for like 60 to 70, even, uh, you know, I've seen them as high as $100,000. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, however, we also have, I say we, but the landowners also get tags. And while they're not available to the public through Parks and Wildlife, they are available through the public uh, through their own uh, hunting programs. Right, right. Well, so I guess I was going to ask, um, what would the magic number be if we're at 1,500 now to where we see these tags increase in availability to the uh, the general public? Yeah, so the magic number. Uh, so right now we have, as I said, 1,500 animals in about 11 mountain ranges. So the the magic number, the goal is to have a bighorns on all 17 or 18 uh, mountain ranges of their historic habitat, and for there to be 2,500, possibly even 3,000 animals uh, in those mountain ranges. And then you'll so give me a tag. Of, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The tag, at that point, tags will will start to increase absolutely. Right you'll on. Be, you'll be on the list. <laughs> Me and everybody else. Exactly. All right, Ferland. Well, hey, man. Always great touching base with you. I love just uh, picking your brain on all things West Texas and and learning more about our uh, big game species that inhabit that region. Certainly appreciate it, my friend. Yeah. No. No. Thank you, uh, Cable. You know. It's, uh, it's a it's a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I greatly appreciate what you do in trying to get the, you know, trying to get the uh, bighorn restoration, and not just bighorn, but the wildlife stories out to to the public. So appreciate what you do. All right. Well, I know you got to get back in the helicopter, so we'll do it again soon. All right, we'll do. Thank you so much. All right, Froilan Hernandez, our Desert Bighorn Program Leader uh, for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Uh, really insightful stuff there. I had no idea that Audad Rams would herd up desert bighorn ewes and try to mate with them. Um, Really interesting stuff there. Uh, That segment 
of the show, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land, that's the one thing they're not making any more of, right? We all want it, though. So if you're ready to take the next step, make that dream your reality, uh, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. They've been helping their borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, whether that's for running cattle, recreating, hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city. Go to LoneStarAgCredit.com for more information. Coming up next, we grab the fly rods and head down to the coast to chase uh, redfish, trout, and flounder on the fly with Captain Vince Ochoa right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. The granddaddy of all hunting shows returns this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. We'll have all the latest in hunting gadgets and gear. Buy direct from the manufacturers and save. Bring the kids and see Gator Country's huge alligators. Last season's bucks from our annual deer contest. Live rattlesnakes. And enter our incredible locked and loaded giveaway. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. Returning this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. For details and tickets, visit HuntersExtravaganza.com. Uh, my name is Robbie Byers. I'm the executive director of CCA Texas, and I'm listening to the Lone Star Outdoors radio show. Because the weather's nice and the water's bright, man, I could fish here all damn night. When you had a bad day and your mind is in a haze, you can clear your head in these salt water bays. One of my all-time favorites there, that is Brandon Keyes, Saltwater Bays, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Uh, We're all set to head to the Saltwater Bays of the Gulf of Mexico to talk a little fly fishing, and we'll do that with Captain Vince Ochoa, a longtime friend, but before... We get into that conversation. I do want to remind you about the All Seasons Feeder's new monolith deer feeder. Um, All Seasons listens to their customer feedback, and now the monolith is basically just how it sounds. It's mono, meaning it's just got one, I want to call it leg, and inside that leg, it's, it's a pretty thick leg, is where you'll find the housing for your battery, timer, all that good stuff, meaning... No varmints, no matter how hard they try, can get in there. And uh, bucks no longer, uh, because there is no cage, there's nothing else for them to uh, you know, feel uncomfortable. They'll walk right underneath that thing. It's the monolith. You can find it at allseasonfeeders.com. All right. Uh, well, let's bring on our next guest. He grew up uh, essentially deckhanding on uh, offshore rigs. 
that passion for fishing transformed more into a love for fly fishing the bays. And he's been guiding fly fishing trips for some time now. It's fair to say that the salt water runs deep in his veins. It's my pleasure to welcome Captain Vince Ochoa back to the show. Hey, man. Glad to be back. Absolutely. Things have uh, taken a little bit of a turn for you of late. I know you recently put your boat on the market and sold it, which I was surprised to hear that when we were talking off the air. Uh, so what's going on on that front? I know it hasn't kept you off the water. No, it definitely hasn't, man. You know what they say, best day is when you buy your boat, and the best day after that is when you sell it. <laughs> um, I don't find that in my case, you know. I miss being on the water 24-7, but uh, I think it was a little time for an upgrade. Yeah. So waiting on the new boat to be built, a little bigger. So I'll be back on the water a lot more once that's completed, but still fishing. You know, blessed to have some buddies that want to go out and catch fish, and thankfully they give me a phone call every now and then. So, right. You sent me some flies that you tied too. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I started tying. um, That's been four or five years ago. Yeah, that was a while back. I broke my collarbone one year and got bored. I couldn't fish, so I said, "Hey, maybe I'll give my shot at fly tying." (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's how I started. I mean, they weren't the greatest flies of all, but they caught some fish, not a lot. I think I've kind of, I like to say I've, I've improved a little better. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's my passion. I love to fly fish. That's my weapon of choice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've I've done a lot of tournaments, did a lot of bay tournaments. We just did one this um, past weekend. I did. Uh, it's your 80th annual Texas International Fishing Tournament. Um, it used to be called like Texas Tarpon Rodeo, something back in the day. But it's been going 80 years strong, hasn't been canceled once, uh, situated in Port Isabel. You know, I was doing the fly fishing division, of course. How did you do? have normal bay fishing. Um, I did okay. Um, that doesn't sound very good. It was a, no, definitely not. <laughs> I weighed in, in both bays, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I had a total of maybe nine pounds, nine and a half pounds. Um, you know, for fly fishing, you know, for bay fishing, that's not a lot. That's like one redfish. But fishing was slow. It was 120-something-plus bay field, just the fleet that was in just Calcutta. Well, so let's talk about the let's talk about the bay species. That's what I really want to focus on today. Trout, redfish, and flounder, three most popular yeah. sport fish that we find in the in the uh, bays there in the Gulf of Mexico. And I want to run through what baits you're having success, where you're finding them. Um, all that good stuff. So let's start with trout. Um, where are you finding most of the trout right now, and what flies are eliciting the most strikes? So right now, being the heat of summer, probably triple-digit days down there on the coast. Well, I was in Galveston trout, last weekend, and it was hot as hell. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's, it's been crazy. Yeah. Um, so let's say this, this past weekend, for instance, uh, you know, during our tournament, a lot of the trout that I caught were probably in about 18 to two feet of water. I was throwing maybe four flies this whole entire weekend. Um, the flies I was throwing were seaducers, um, a little bit of redfish crack, which imitates shrimp. Both of those imitate shrimp. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, the trout seemed to love them. Uh, a lot of natural colors, uh, white seaducers were working good. But, you know, if you want to get to your, your, you normal fisherman that likes to throw a lure, then 
fishing about one to three feet of water, whether it be clear or a little bit murky. Um, I always like to fish in somewhat of a grassy bottom area during during summer. Uh, it doesn't retain, usually it's a sand bottom, so it doesn't retain as much heat. Um, it'll be a little bit cooler for the fish. Um, you know, sight casting is obviously another thing that I love to do, and it's it's hard in some areas because the water doesn't have very good clarity most of the time. Yeah. But, you know, white gulp is the way to go. Um, I've partnered up with uh, Z-Man Fishing Products and spent a year on the lower laguna developing bait colors for them. Um, and I've grown a re great relationship with them. Um, my claim to fame is known as the Laguna Shrimp. It's a pink top with a translucent tan bottom. Um, it's got a little bit of red and green glitter flakes, a little bit of black glitter. And the reason I came up with that color is, I mean, I spent every single day on the water for about three months during summer and early fall mm -hmm. catching fish, catching redfish. And I'm not a big fish kill guy. I don't like to kill a lot of fish. Usually if I'm going to eat dinner or lunch that day, I'll kill one or two. But one thing I always enjoy doing, it's kind of weird, is just looking to see what they're eating. You know, mm -hmm. what's in their stomach? Where do they eat that day? And I noticed a lot of shrimp in our bays were different colors than most shrimp. Um, they had a little bit of a pink tint to them. Um, they're a little bit translucent. You know, even at the bay shop, you go and get you know, bait, fresh shrimp, and you'll notice they're, they're a little bit, their color's off. And, you know, working with, with Z-Man kind of got me to say, hey, look, you know, this is what we got going. This, I think this color will work, you know, pretty good. And we did a couple test runs of it, came up with the exact color mixture and the right pattern that we wanted. And I mean, it's been selling like hotcakes everywhere from the States to Australia. I've taken them to Hawaii, you know, I know people that are using them down in Mexico. So it's, it's a good shrimp lure. Um, you know, I like to throw it on a three sixteenth ounce jig head, just kind of bounce it off the bottom. Um, or you can work it fast and just kind of let it sit right underneath that, that water line. Um, you know, early morning bite has always been producing really good trout. Um, right along the intercoastal, the ditch I like to call is, uh, you know, there's little houses that are situated down there and it's a good flounder spot. Flounder like to hang on that edge, whether it be incoming or, you know, low tide or outgoing tide. Um, but you can cast a lure underneath that structure and there's always going to be a trout there. Kind of like a bass, you know, they like to sit around structure, like sit in shady areas. Oh yeah. Um, that's why a lot of people like to chase trout during, you know, the wintertime when they spawn is, they're a lot harder to bite. Those big trout are a lot, it takes a lot from the bite. Um, and like I said, right now, heat of summer, you know, it's 103 today. So, I mean, it's, it's hot. Um, good sandy bottom, good sandy grass bottoms, not going to retain a lot of heat. So that water is going to be keeping those fish, you know, a little bit cooler than normal. So um, they'll be up shallow during middays. Early, early is the best time to go if you can get out early. If you can't, right around sunset, you know, last light, last two hours of light. Always been producing a good bite lately. Um, and of course, you can always catch them in deep water. 
you know, don't be afraid to throw a, a plastic underneath a popping cork if you're having a struggle trying to catch them on, you know, bouncing a jig or a lure or a fly. You know, if you got a bait caster spinning around with you, always rig up a popping cork. I mean, that's that's the go-to for a lot of people, and it works. Oh, yeah, and put a live shrimp on there, and you're golden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put a live shrimp on there. Everything eats a live shrimp. <laughs> that's man. right. That's right. Uh, my mentality, so it's, it's so crazy because, like, I'm a uh, diehard bass fisherman when it comes to, you know, uh, only fish with artificial, like most people. But I go to the yeah. coast, and since I don't live there, my goal is catching, you know? And uh, exactly. I'll be the first one to put a live bait on. I do not care. I'm not too <laughs> proud to say it. And I also, you know, I also want to bring home a, a cooler fish as well. So, yeah. I mean, that's it's it's different, a different mindset. Uh, fishing one spot exactly, to the other. Exactly, it is. But, well, okay, so um, what, what about redfish? Are you finding them in the same haunts as the trout? Usually they're kind of, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, redfish, I feel they have a, a little bit bigger zone. Um, like I said, it's hot right now. You're going to get one, maybe one last run of the bulls coming in, uh, coming in the bays. The redfish I've been catching this past week and have been more than a estuary environment or estuary habitat, a little bit brackish water. Um, you know, it makes it difficult fishing South Padre because it has the highest salinity of any bay in Texas. Um, they're usually with trout, same areas with trout. Like I said, super hot day, sandy bottom, won't retain a lot of heat. Grass, they love to be on the grass flats. Um, reason being is a lot of that grass is, is home to microplankton, zooplankton is what a lot of the shrimp feed on. And when there's shrimp, there's redfish yeah. and, you know, crabs like to feed on zooplankton, you know, all that stuff too. And they find themselves home in the grass flats. We have a lot of turtle grass down there. So finding tailing redfish on a grass flat early mornings, always been good. Um, for fly fishing, if they're tailing, never really want to throw right in the middle of the school. Always try and go outside of whether it be a pod or a big school. But if it's a couple single tails out there and they're spread out, you know, just try and work either the outside. Um, a lot of flies that I've been throwing lately are quans, which imitate a, a crab. Um, there's one that my favorite pattern, a guy from Florida by the name of Nick Davis designed called Redfish Ritalin. It's basically like a marsh bug. So it looks like it's uh, hmm. it's just been phenomenal. Yep. Now we back here in North Texas, we we do the same thing with carp, and it's like you know poor man's red fishing, but we do it at the lakes and. Oh yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and sight casting to to carp, which uh, unlike redfish, not the best table fare. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Man. What about flounder? Are you finding any flounder? I was when I was in Galveston this past weekend. Um, a lot of people were catching them in the surf. We've seen a really good flounder hatch this year. I probably caught about four on the fly this past weekend. I like to fish a uh, a little drop off, a little ledge. There's certain flats down there on the coast that are super sandy. There's a pattern of Borsky slider, and about a size six is what I was throwing. Hmm. And um, I was basically situated on a flat. I was out in the water waiting, got off the boat. And uh, this flat situated right off the intercoastal waterway. And it goes from about 40 feet from the intercoastal to about a foot and a half right on that flat. 
And just on that edge, right between there is where all the grass is gone. It's just sand. And I mean, dragging that fly on the bottom and just slow bouncing it off the bottom is what was producing a lot of bites down there. We're almost out of time, but let's wrap it up here. Tell us your ideal fly rod and reel combo. I don't know if you're throwing an eight weight or what, but uh, I'm sure that would be valuable insight to anyone that's uh, interested in and fly fishing the coast? You know, my normal day, whether I be guiding with clients or if I'm out fun fishing, um, usually I have an eight weight. Um, I love Orvis. I'm on the Orvis team. So Orvis eight weight, it's got a lot of good flex, a lot of good pickup. Um, any eight weight that has a good backbone to it is really good. Um, I'd say that's the starter fly fishing rod for anyone who wants to fly fish the coast. Probably about a 15 pound, 20 pound liter, and about a 10 pound tip it is good, fluorocarbon. Uh, fluorocarbon will sink a little bit more than monofilament will. And I mean, your go-to flies, if you're a beginner, I'd start off with a clouser, natural colors, maybe a little topwater, shrimp topwater, or uh, gangster gurglers, what some people call them. And, you know, a quan or a sea deucer. That's okay. the four flies I'd put in a box. Those are the four I'd want to be. I'd want to take with me no matter what. Vince, if you want to give us your social media uh, your Instagram handle, that good stuff, so folks can follow along, see what you're catching. and Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Captain Vince, or C-A-P-T, Vince 8A on Instagram. That's really the only social media I have. Right on. Well, hey, man, we appreciate the time as always. Hey, it was good talking to you, bud. Likewise, there he goes, Captain Vince Ochoa on all things fly fishing, the Gulf of Mexico, as far as uh, the bays are concerned anyway. Uh, that segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue, where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. That's right, uh, after the hunt, or maybe you're just getting off the water, whatever the case, stop in, uh, grab yourself some great barbecue, and wash it all down with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. Coming up next, we check in with our old pal, Lantani. Uh, the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. There's a new acting director of the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, a little cause for concern there. We discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Just 60 seconds of you letting me get in your world. I'll have you laughing, loving, living. That's my mission, girl. Whatever gets you feeling. Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them cable sent you. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoors show. Shane Smith and the Saints. What a shame bringing us back from break. 
Thank you guys and gals for being here today. I certainly appreciate it. No doubt about that. We're going to get into a public land situation that I feel needs monitoring. I'm not saying it's an issue yet. Um, our good friend Lantani of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers might be singing a different tune. I don't know. Uh, but I certainly want to get his take on the appointment of William Perry Penley as the acting director of the Bureau of Land Management. And the BLM, of course, is the organization that's responsible for overseeing the vast majority of federally owned public lands in our great country. Uh, unfortunately, his track record leaves cause for concern, and we're going to get into that with land here momentarily. But first, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. And don't forget that hunting season is basically here. You're going to start seeing the camo can pop up all over the place once again. So uh, grab your 12-pack on the way to the deer lease. Or, hey, if you're heading out to the Dove Patch, uh, be sure to grab a 12-pack of the camo cans. And remember, celebrate responsibly after the hunt with an ice-cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Okay, let's bring on our next guest here. He's a longtime friend of the show. We've had quite a few interesting discussions over the years. It's my pleasure to welcome Backcountry Hunters and Anglers President and CEO, Lantani, back to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me again. So how has your summer been? I, I've been uh, keeping up with you on Instagram. It seems like you've been hiking your tail off. <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't, I don't really have a tail, but I had a bunch of winter fat. <laughs> so uh, you know, we had our hike to hunt at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, I set a goal of 400 miles in two months, and I, I hit it and got 401 miles. That's so incredible. That's, uh, yeah, it's been dominating for me. I've, I lost like 20 pounds, and we got to see some really cool stuff, and uh, now I feel like I'm in better shape for this fall. And you overachieved, went over by one mile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 401. Yeah. 400. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Awesome. And uh, I've seen you've been doing some fishing, too. Yep, yep. Uh, it's, you know got two young kids one's 11 one's eight and fishing is something that we can do as a family and so you know i took six days off of work to do some fishing around the golden stone hatch and then i'm um, getting the kids out you know hoppers are just starting and uh big sloppy flies are easy for kids to cast and mm -hmm. they fish love when there's a lot of uh it's not like that delicate kind of thing sometimes you think about with like a fly fishing is just really rough action so they're real you know they can be very successful i would say at it. nice nice well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I got an, I guess the BHA newsletter came out and um, it was on the heels of the Trump administration appointing William Perry Penley as the new director of the Bureau of Land Management. And and it would, you know, the tone of the uh, newsletter would lead one to believe this is a very bad appointment for public land uh, enthusiasts. So tell us a little bit about, you know, why... Um, DHA specifically sees this as a threat. Yeah, I'll, I'll step back just a little bit. Is that you know when President Trump was running, you know he really talked about you know keeping public lands in public hands and the importance of of public lands. Um, and you know I think his son Don Trump Jr. I think is definitely was part of the reason for that. Mm -hmm. um, then you go into the you know Secretary of Interior kind of nomination process, and you know there was a few folks that were put up on the block, you know, that for consideration. 
that really, um, Kathy McMorris Rogers, I think is probably the, the best example from Washington, who was on record, you know, in supporting the sale of public lands. And so, you know, at that point, I think there's a bunch of folks that mobilized and, and, and really, I think is the reason why, you know, Mr. Zinke ascended to the Secretary of Interior position because he was totally against the sale and transfer of public lands. Now, you know, where we are now is you have, you know, William Penley, who is, you know, he's written books. He's gave a speech just a, you know, two years ago about how, you know, there shouldn't be any uh, federally managed public land. And, and so, you know, while he's not in a position where he can, he's acting director now, but even as director, he couldn't sell public land um, and or transfer it. What he is in a position to do is that you have somebody there that wants to fundamentally dismantle you know, the Bureau of Land Management, which is, you know, the number one uh, public land agency, they have 245 million acres that is under their purview. Mm-hmm. You have somebody in charge that fundamentally does not think that we should um, be managing those lands. And and so, you know, whether that's, you know, not letting projects go forward or making things harder, pulling money away from uh, trail maintenance, just trying to make, you know, the Bureau of Land Management look as sick as possible and so that then that, that conversation can have a, happen at a congressional level that maybe we should get rid of these lands. So um, it's a pretty dangerous thing and I think it really goes against what the president ran on. I think it goes against you know what the first secretary was all about and so you know it's something that we raised the ire about and I think we've had a pretty good response so far. Uh-huh. Okay um, so I, I guess this guy uh, William Penley he has a, a track record on well, I tried to do a lot of research, you know, read everything that yep. you guys put out and then kind of went and read some other stuff. And I know Montana is, is going on like right now, there's a plan to hopefully introduce a, a bison herd, like a free ranging bison herd. I, I don't know what, what piece of land or where that is going to take place, but um, obviously you guys would probably be in favor of that. The constituents for William Penley would say, well, hey, this guy is a, uh, he knows about the economy and the importance of agriculture and, and grazing easements on that piece of land. And if, um, you know, bison are put there, then those grazing easements go away and that negatively affects the economy. So what would you say to someone on, on that side of the fence? Um, I think that, you know, on, on bison in particular, there's no real proposals that are out there okay. um, that are like very established. I think that, you know, that, um, it'd be pretty be cool to have a badass bison herd. Oh yeah, there, be, no, it'd be awesome to hunt bison, and I and I think that you know there's there's folks that are working on something in central Montana, um, around the uh, Missouri Breaks uh, National Monument, as well as the Charles M National Wildlife Refuge. So I think in total you're looking at almost like three million acres potential there. Uh-huh. I think on the grazing allotments in particular, you know there's uh, willing sellers, willing buyers, and so allotments, you know that are being sold with either ranches or uh, and being bid on, like that's all kind of within the normal process. And so um, whether that's bison or cattle, I think, you know, it's up to the private landowner and what they want to do. And so that's, I think, going to sort itself out. Um, you know, Mr. Penley, you know, you bring up grazing. He he really supported the Bundys when they um, didn't pay their uh, their grazing fees, you know, for mm-hmm. over God, I mean, decades and like oh you know you and me as taxpayers over a million dollars he supported them when they um took over the mount here national wildlife refuge you know and they were talking about let's return this land to the people and you know a national wildlife refuge belongs to everybody that's listening to this uh, it's paid for by duck stamp dollars it's management is paid for duck stamp dollars 
And so when they say return that to the people and what he was supporting was not, you know, we the people as Americans, it's, it's the people as very individuals. And I think that fundamentally gets down to what Mr. Penley thinks is that, you know, he, he thinks that um, land should should be privatized. And, you know, for you and I, I mean, I don't have billions of dollars to go buy up these places. And so public lands are places where I can go, you know, without, you know, um, you know without need for money and have the same experiences that, you know, somebody that has a lot of money, but if they're open to all of us. And so it's Pendley is fundamentally against that piece. And I think that's what gives us the most pause. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a, you know, a lot of money to go buy my own place either land. That's why I'm heading to Montana in what three <laughs> weeks to hunt elk up in. Uh... Yeah, you get to visit your kingdom, right? That's right. That's right. That's kingdom. right. Um, you know, what's your kingdom? It is mine, right? That's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I'm a. Uh, it's no secret. I I voted for Ted Cruz. I backed him. Uh, I thought he was the. Uh, a lot of times, it's the lesser of two evils when when you look at everything a politician stands for. And Ted Cruz was on the record saying, "Hey, I want I want to transfer." Um, you know, federal land to state control is Penley on the record of saying transfer to the states or sell off to the private sector. Both. Okay. Right. On. Well, I mean, it, it's no secret. What the states don't want the land, right? What unless unless uh, they can I mean, I, unless they can make a, a make a profit off of it, right? Because right now the the it's federally funded. You transfer to the states, then it's a money pit for them unless they can log it, frack it, or sell it. Or mine minerals or whatever yeah, they're going to do. All, you're totally right, and I think all that is just a short-term sale or short-term like uh, kind of process to the sale. Yeah, that's right? the point. I mean, so, people but, don't realize that. Oh, what's the big deal? They're going to okay. Um, they're going to transfer all of the land to the state's control. Oh, that's great. We want you know our state to have more control of it. And I think that's that mindset is. Uh, I think people are not seeing the big picture there because the state doesn't want it unless they can make money off of it. Right, and in, and I think there's only been one study that was done out of Utah that, you know, that um, uh, when oil was like over $100 a barrel that like penciled out to break even, okay, to break even. Now, that's when like oil is at $100 a barrel. What happens when it dips down to $50, $60? Well, at that point, that's what everybody's worried about because that's when they're going to start selling. And, you know, I think ultimately, um, you know, a lot of states do manage their own uh, state lands in a, in a great way. And, you know, I'm working with a bunch of folks today uh, talking about how we manage our forests in Montana that include state forests as well as, you know, forests on Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service. Um, but, you know, this idea, um, I think there's just a huge track record of states selling public land. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we want to make sure that they are you know, stay under federal management and then continue to belong to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, going back through Mr. Pinley's um political career i know he was on the i think he served on the reagan administration and that's when you hear this term sagebrush rebellion and and reagan actually ran on the platform of basically what we're talking about today Um, and luckily that that didn't really go anywhere but uh penley even his twitter handler handle is uh I think it's Sagebrush Rebellion or something like that. Sagebrush Rebel. Sagebrush Rebel. Rebel. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, he's very proud of that uh, that legacy and being a part of it, even though it was a failed legacy. Um, but, uh, you know, that just kind of tells you where his mindset is. And uh, I'm, that's why I appreciate you guys putting out these newsletters. You and I obviously have had a lot of great conversations over the years. We agree on most stuff, don't agree on a few things. Um, but the point is that you guys – do a great job of keeping everyone else in the loop. And when something like this, a cause for concern for public land advocacy is 
um, brought to the forefront, you know, uh, there's a responsibility there that, that you guys are taking on, and I certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Cable, and I think you know that's one of the I think, biggest jobs of BHA is to inform people and then make it easy for them to take action. And, you know, I guess the piece that people can take action on right now, we haven't talked about this yet, but you know, he's been put in as an acting um, director. And so yeah, I think no he opportunity. runs out in September, his term, or however long that appointment is. Yeah, and there's, there's no opportunity for... Um, uh, like confirmation process, right? So to kind of talk to him about his record. And so, you know, we would like to see him gone just because, uh, you know, because of the record that we've talked about today. But at the very least, let's have him go through a confirmation process in the Senate. And, you know, I think that at that point, then he has to face scrutiny. So I think, you know, we've asked our membership and, you know, asking everybody to kind of listen to this now is to really call your, your senators and ask them, you know, to really ask for, a confirmation process uh, for Mr. Penley. And I think, you know, like we've, we've, we sent, we sent like 15,000 uh, notes up to Congress in, in like a week uh, since we sent out this action alert last week. So people are on it and you know, I'd encourage anybody, you know, to either call or send a message. You can easily send a message through our uh, website. And when there's a capital switchboard, um, you can call and just get hooked up with your, uh, with your Senator. I certainly appreciate you coming on and just giving us a little more insight into uh, what's going on there. And uh, hopefully, like you said, folks will call their elected officials and we can get a due process. Yeah, you know, and I think let's remember that, you know, we're in an experiment here with our public lands, right? And like what kind of Roosevelt and others started, you know, I mean, there was folks that, I mean, you mentioned the sagebrush kind of rebellion um, during kind of late 70s, Reagan's kind of time. Um, I mean, once Roosevelt started, you know, like, like setting these aside for all Americans, you know, there was those that wanted to privatize them back then. Um, they're still there today. And so I don't think these forces ever go away and we're in an experiment and let's, you know, let's, let's, let's remember how unique this is in the world. Like we're the only country that operates this way. And, uh, you know, that didn't happen by accident. We're not going to carry it forward by accident either. And it's up to all of us to kind of use our voice. If we don't use our voices, man, like shame on us. There's no doubt. It's our greatest resource. I, I truly believe that. So absolutely. I look forward to our next visit. Sounds good, man. Anytime, anytime. And have fun up in Montana, dude. Good luck. I will hopefully send you a picture of a big Montana 6x6. (laughs) There you go. Or a 4x5. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Better is like meat in the freezer, right? That is right, man. (laughs) I can dream anyway. But yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. So there he goes. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers President and CEO, our good friend, Lantani. And y'all know how much I love public lands. My greatest hunting accomplishments greatest memories have all occurred on public lands in the mountains with a bow and um it's why i struggle with politics and politicians sometimes because you know i endorse ted cruz and he is in mike lee's camp senator from utah uh as far as wanting to transfer federal land to state control which i wholeheartedly am opposed to but at the same time how can i uh, a staunch supporter of the second amendment and the america that my grandfathers fought for in World War II. How can I support that and vote for someone like Beto? So, man, it's it's truly in 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 my career choice. One of the things that's just like, wow, what do you what do you do here? And uh, for me, the Second Amendment always wins out because if I don't have a gun or the opportunity to go hunt on those public lands, I'm not much of a nature hiker. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, I want to go hunting. 
Uh, so that's that's how I uh, how I choose to see things on those issues. Luckily, Ted Cruz and and Senator Lee as well are in the vast minority as far as that opinion is concerned. That segment of the show, by the way, proudly brought to you by Bolsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging. If you haven't seen the new Axiom thermal monocular you need to check it out it's about the size of your average rangefinder out there meaning it is very small but it still offers all of the amazing features that you come to expect from pulsar including internal recording uh, which is one of my favorite features you can find it right there at pulsarnb.com i'm taking mine to montana actually i got to research to make sure that's legal uh, it's legal in a lot of states but uh, if i can take it to montana on that elk hunt guarantee you i'm gonna it's an invaluable tool for scouting and for locating game species. And uh, I encourage you to check it out, pulsarnv.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Uh, thanks to all of our guests, uh, Froilan Hernandez of Texas Parks and Wildlife, Lantani of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and our good friend and Captain Vincent Ochoa. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Party at 10. Run forever if you never let it in. I got a party.